0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and biblical theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Global partners, far to the east, far to the west, in some of the hardest places on the planet, taking the name of Christ. It may be that God chooses to call you to such a place, or it may be that He chooses to use you as a sender. Those are your only two faithful options. I invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah. It's not a place that many people go to often. It's not a place that many people go for a message on missions. We're going to be looking at Zephaniah chapter 3, and I'm going to walk through this message in three parts. I'm going to try to situate our passage, which is Zephaniah 3, verses 9 and 10, situate it within the whole book, because for most in this room, this is a very foreign book. Next, I'm going to just walk through the passage itself, and then finally, I want to consider how to understand this passage in light of salvation history and specifically the work of God on a global scale in the 21st century. So to that end, let's pray. You, O God, have sent your Son and in doing so you have cast down the strong man, the very one who blinded the eyes of people from every tongue and tribe and language and nation is now being held back and your gospel is penetrating into places that it never was for all the years preceding the intrusion of the Christ. And here we are in the 21st century seeing it happen in northern China and in southern Brazil. In the desolate parts of Ethiopia, and right here in the Phillips neighborhood raising up men and women that you are using for the sake of the name and I pray that right now in this place that you would meet us that you would let your word be alive to us an ancient word intruding into a contemporary world with hope and life and clarity as we read it through the lens and supremacy and sufficiency of the Son who is risen and who reigns. Meet us now for the glory of His name among the nations we pray. Amen. Zephaniah. Zephaniah was a prophet, a covenant enforcer In the days of Josiah, in the days of his reformation, you'll remember that King Josiah was one of the two solid kings in the south that God used to awaken an entire generation back to Yahweh. Now, in this day, this prophet was able to see into the very hearts of his people, see darkness there, and he was able to see, foresee into the future... Darkness looming on the horizon. It's called the day of the Lord. Look with me in Zephaniah chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. Zephaniah 1, verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. The day of the Lord is like a sacrifice. Without a substitute, but rather sinners on the altar experiencing the very fires of the living God. A just wrath against sinners. Look with me now at verse 14. We'll read through verse 18. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, A day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind. Why? Because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung as if they were a sacrificial animal. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of His jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. The day of the Lord is nothing to be taken lightly. It's a day of darkness, of pain, of punishment. It's a day when sinners will become the sacrifice because they do not draw near to their God. God takes sin seriously, and so should we. As you move into chapter 2, Zephaniah gives his very first commands, the the very first Hebrew imperatives in the book. Look with me at Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the very anger of the Lord. The burning anger, the very day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do His just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming, and yet He speaks to a remnant who have ears to hear. Seek the Lord together in order to avoid punishment. In verse 5 of chapter 2, he has woe. In chapter 3, verse 1, he has woe. And those two woes highlight the negative state and destructive fate of the rebels, first from the world, beyond Israel, and then for the rebels within Jerusalem itself. In chapter 2, it focuses on Philistia to the west, Moab and Ammon to the east. And then the imperial powers of Cush and Assyria to the south and the north. And then, having surrounded Jerusalem like a compass of judgment, the declaration is that the fires of God will implode on the center and Jerusalem herself will be destroyed. Chapter 3, verse 1, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressive city. Verse 5, the very place where the living God resides is the place where sin has set itself. And the day of the Lord is coming, says Zephaniah. So now we come to our passage. He has said, seek the Lord together in order that you can avoid judgment. Why? Why? Because of the state and fate of all the rebels of the world. That's why you should seek the Lord. Command, seek the Lord together. Reason, because of the state and fate of the rebels. Therefore, chapter 3, verse 8, therefore, wait for me. Now, in 3, 1 through 7, the you... The second person form that we see in verse 7, for example, is feminine. And it's talking about the city that's mentioned in three, one. It's the city of Jerusalem that's going to be destroyed. But when we get to three eight, the you, wait for me, you, wait for me, is not feminine singular, it's plural, masculine plural. And the last time we saw those masculine plural references were back in chapter 2, verses 1 and 3 the group that he calls to gather, the group that he calls to seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, are the very ones that he's calling to wait on him. Everywhere throughout the Old Testament, the verb to wait is always used either positively or neutrally. It's never used negatively. So when I hear, wait for me, I'm not hearing, wait for me until I get home and you're going to get in trouble. Rather, it's judgment is coming. Oh God, how long? How long? And he's saying, wait for me. Wait for me, O remnant of faithful. We pick up in verse 8. Wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, It's coming. It's coming. It may feel like it's nowhere near. The darkness may be so thick. The pain, the problems, the all-seeing external eye that's watching you everywhere you go. Northern China. Just wait. Wait for me for the day when I rise up to seize the prey for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For, for, at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of of the Lord, and serve him shoulder to shoulder, in one accord, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. So let's look at these verses. The charge to wait for the Lord. It's made, wait for me, and then two reasons are given. Each reason begins with a subordinate conjunction, which the ESV is Translated helpfully, for. So look with me at the text when we look see these two reasons. We're in chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for... First reason why they need to wait. For my decision is to gather every people group and every political power to one place. And in that day of ingathering, I will separate the sheep from the goats, and upon the goats I will pour all the fires of my just jealousy. My jealousy for the fame of my name will be poured out on every sinner who is not saved. This is serious fires. Once again, it's the imagery of the sacrifice. The day of the Lord is sacrifice. And here you get these fires of God's wrath that are being poured out, and the image is that all the earth will be consumed by these fires. And yet, verse 9 tells us there's a remnant. There's a remnant. Because the coming punishment is certain, keep waiting. Don't give up trust. I think that's the logic that he's saying. Wait for me because you can be confident that I take sin seriously. And in due course, all the problems that have been brought against you will be dealt with. All the injustice that you've felt, the oppression that you've endured, all of it will be addressed. Therefore, keep waiting patiently pursuing me don't give in don't give up keep fighting in a dependent humility not self exaltation not self-reliance but a radical god dependence yes i will hope in you that's the first reason why they need to wait second reason brings us to the focus of this message verses 9 and 10 Why do they need to persist in Godward trust? Wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, verse 9, for at that time, what time? At the time of judicial assessment. What time? The day of the Lord. At the day of the Lord, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. There's going to be a tongue transformation and what it's going to generate among the peoples. you see that? It's plural. It's not singular. Among those from the nations, from the kingdoms, there's going to be a remnant of peoples who are going to experience transformation of speech so that there is one unified profession calling on the name of the Lord. And then unity among this new community made up of people apparently multi-ethnic because it's peoples. Various people groups represented in this new community with transformed speech, radical dependence on a single God and then serving side by side. Shoulder to shoulder is what it says in the Hebrew text. As partners, red and yellow, black and white in this new community. Now the term that's translated Speech transformed speech. Intriguingly, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it renders it "tongue," a transformed tongue, so that the result is calling on the name of the Lord. This calling is an outward expression of, of worshipful dependence on a God who has encountered you as Savior, as King and his treasure. Here's Psalm 116, Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. I will lift up the cup of salvation and will call on the name of the Lord. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. The prophets often link this image of calling on the name with the day of the Lord if you can just have eyes to see, like the prophet did, that God takes sin so seriously, believe me, you will want to call on this name. Because He alone holds every tomorrow and He alone is the only Savior. Here's Isaiah chapter 12. What does it picture? In the days when the child king... Remember uh, the child will rise he'll have four names wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace when on the days when that child king comes and he's endowed with the spirit of the living god he will initiate a second exodus that will include those from the nations plural and from the nation israelites and they will gather to god's holy mountain in a great end time second exodus following this great child king. And in that day, we read, you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim his name is exalted. Similarly, the book of Joel. In the very spot that Peter at Pentecost reaches back and says... This prophetic, gospel-making, tongue-speaking declaration that you're experiencing is grounded in the book. It was foreseen in the book. In that very text in Joel chapter 2, we read, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and smoke. Blood and fire, columns of smoke, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from the fires of judgment, somehow protected, preserved justly. How does that happen? For in Mount Zion, which is where they have gathered, in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape. In the very place where the presence of God resides, there will be protection, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. What this text suggests is that the day of the Lord, which is fire in verse 8, at that very same time, on that very day, it's not only fire, it's new creation. New creation is going to happen. A New people are going to be shaped transformed from once hostile cursers of Yahweh into callers upon His name. Why? Because they have somehow encountered the only Savior, the only Sovereign, and the only Satisfier. And that one encounter, like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, changed them. Oh, that we and others might have eyes to see Now what we read next in verse 10 actually identifies that what Zephaniah is envisioning is a reversal of past curse. Look with me there. Verse 10, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. So God's talking. There's going to be people from beyond the rivers of Cush who are going to show up at the sanctuary of God where he sits on the throne and they'll be bringing him offering at the day of the Lord. Cush is black Africa. It was the most southern kingdom on the planet in Zephaniah's day. It was the farthest end of the globe. It was located south of Egypt in present-day modern Sudan. So the two rivers that it mentions are likely the white and the blue Nile. Beyond those rivers... Where the peoples have been scattered, I will gather them in. The name Cush, both the region and the people, are named after Cush, Noah's grandson, through Ham. Cush's son was Nimrod, who built Babel. Now the first time we read about Cush in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 2. It's one of the regions on the planet where one of the four rivers flowing out of Eden went around. So it's as if what Zephaniah is picturing is an awakening of those who have been cast to the far parts of the earth and all of a sudden they have tasted the living water and they're following the rivers of life back to their source at the sanctuary of God and they're bringing offerings to the great king. And these worshipers, in light of verse 9, are made up of a multi-ethnic contingent. It's peoples, plural, who have transformed tongue, a new speech pattern, calling on the name of the Lord. And in verse 10, look with me, it says that these worshipers are tagged the daughter of my dispersed ones, offspring of those who were once scattered. And because we're talking about peoples, plural, not just the people being scattered like Israel at the exile, but peoples being scattered and transformation of tongue, it seems to recall the Tower of Babel that Zephaniah actually has on his mind the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Remember Genesis 11, verse 9. The place was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, singular, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. The exact same Hebrew word for language is what the ESV in our passage renders speech. The exact same word rendered dispersed in Genesis eleven nine is the term that's used here of my dispersed ones. So offspring of those once judged at the Tower of Babel, going to the ends of the earth, beyond the rivers of Cush, all of a sudden are going to be reached by a saving God. Back in chapter 2, Cush was mentioned in verse 12 as an object of God's wrath. And now Cush is the sole example, black Africa, of God's restoring new creational work after the day of the Lord. God will make a multi-ethnic group of worshipers who will gather to a transformed Jerusalem with new speech patterns declaring the greatness of God. So, how might we respond to a text like this? Where do we place the fulfillment of such a text within the scope of redemptive history? And how does it at all relate to missions? Let's see. The development of a new creational multi-ethnic community in chapter 3, verse 9, it says it'll happen at that time. Has that time happened yet? fires of God's wrath pouring out on a global scale against nations and kingdoms. Well, we're looking at the enemies of God and Paul, talking about the day of the Lord, looks ahead to his future, a future that is still future for us and declares that the enemies of God will be destroyed when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians 1. The day of the Lord, verse 8, the fires of his wrath are future against God's enemies. Peter 2 highlights the unexpected future nature of the day of the Lord when he says, "...the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief unexpectedly, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up like sacrifices and dissolved." the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed, 2 Peter 3, 7 through 10. 7 and 10. So on the one hand, it's without question, from the perspective of the New Testament authors, that the fires of God's wrath will pour against the enemies of God still in the future. And that's true. But in a very real sense, although that is absolutely true, in another real sense, for the elect of God... What is promised for the future has actually entered into the middle of history when the Son came representing the many and bore on Himself the wrath of God against people from every tongue and tribe and language and nation at the cross. Peter declared that all the prophets foretold Christ's sufferings and the glories that would follow. And if you start in Zephaniah 1 and go to Zephaniah 3, you're not going to find any explicit statement about Christ's sufferings. But Zephaniah said, I mean, Peter said they're here. Acts chapter 3, 18, 24, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11. They're here. All the prophets, including Zephaniah, foretold the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So I want to propose two ways that we see this in the book. Number one, Zephaniah portrays the day of the Lord as a sacrifice by which God will satisfy his wrath and gain victory over all evil. How is it that the New Testament authors talk about the work of Christ? As a sacrifice, a great tribulation that gives rise in his second coming to global triumph. Number two, that Zephaniah envisions the church age wherein Christ's death initially fulfills the vision of the day of wrath against sinners and by that death inaugurates new creation, inaugurates a multi-ethnic gathering of worshipers in the very presence of the king. So I have three points that I want you to take away as I unpack what I've just said. Number one, recognize that Christ's sacrificial death initiates the day of the Lord for the elect. For Zephaniah, the day of the Lord was war. War against sinners who have violated a just God's call for glory. And that war is portrayed as sacrifice. That's what's happening all throughout the beginning of Leviticus. War. War against sin. War against your sin and my sin. Bound up in a substitute. That represents us before the living God. The very flames of God being poured out on the Son of God for you and for me. 1 7 in Zephaniah says, God has a day in store, a day of wrath, and that day is on a sacrifice. Right order exists where God is exalted over all things. That's where right order exists, and He reestablishes right order by punishing sinners or punishing a substitute. By failing to draw near to the Lord, those in Zephaniah's day were declaring themselves the sacrifice. But oh, that they could enter into the very pattern of structure that God had set in place way back in the Pentateuch of provision through substitutionary atonement. and in order that we could know that it's not the blood of bulls and goats that take away sins. Isaiah had already declared in Isaiah 53, don't look to a blood of bulls and goats. Look to the one who will come and offer himself, the very God-man, God with us, standing in our stead pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brings us peace is upon Him and by His stripes we are healed. By His sacrifice we are declared righteous and He bears all our iniquities. Every one of the Gospels, all four of them, note this comment, that from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land at the crucifixion. And the very language it uses is language pulled out of texts like Zephaniah chapter 1 that stressed that the day of the Lord would be darkness. Joel chapter 2 Peter's appropriation of it. In Acts chapter two appears to me to suggest that the darkness that the prophet saw as preceding the day of the Lord that was supposed to generate people calling on the name of the Lord that was supposed to give rise to a good news prophetic declaration through the people of God. That. Peter is viewing that as having already been fulfilled in the death of Christ. Initial fulfillment for the elect. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus bears God's wrath as a sacrificial substitute on behalf of the elect. And by this, he was initiating the fulfillment of Zephaniah's latter day, day of the Lord, prophecy of judgment. Christ's first coming initiates the day of the Lord for the elect, but His second coming is when the fires will be held out for all the non-elect. In His first coming, Jesus is the object of God's wrath. In His second coming, He is the instrument of God's wrath. And in between these two comings is the church age. In between these two comings is when God gives the opportunity for you and I to participate in this multi-ethnic community of transformed, God-dependent followers proclaiming His terms of peace before the final day comes. Number two, recognize that Christ's church fulfills Zephaniah's hopes for a single reconciled community from every tribe and tongue. If the fires of judgment foreseen in chapter 3 verse 8 are indeed poured out on the Son of God, then what that means is that the restoration in verses 9 and 10 is inaugurated through His resurrection and it goes public at Pentecost. John said, I baptize you with water, but the one who comes after me will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. In Jerusalem, Jesus initiated a great second exodus, a great ingathering of many peoples that would be saved. He died for the nation of Israel and not for the nation only, says Caiaphas, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad when at Babel. John chapter 11. The church today, made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles in Christ, is, I believe, fulfilling Zephaniah's vision. One way this is seen in, in, is how Luke depicts Pentecost. He cites Joel calling on the name of the Lord. And that's right. But Joel never mentions tongues and he doesn't talk about the unity that would be enjoyed by this new community, both of which make their way into Acts chapter 2. Not only this, beyond the rivers of Cush, how does the Septuagint translate that? Ethiopia. Why is it that Luke chooses an Ethiopian eunuch, a random story of salvation. He could have gone anywhere, and yet he picks that story to throw it into Acts chapter 8 and declare the very first instance of Gentile salvation in the New Covenant age. It's fulfillment of Zephaniah 3. I like Zephaniah. Broader fulfillment of Zephaniah's restoration of hope. Do you see how they're even portrayed? These worshipers are bringing offerings to the very presence of the living God. It's as if they're priests. In Jesus, new creation is initiated. In this age of the church, Jews and Gentiles in Christ become one new man, shoulder to shoulder, side by side, moving in the same direction. Revelation 5, 9, and 10 describes this group in this way, that Jesus is shaping a kingdom and priests from every tribe and language and people and nation. Already as priests, we and I are offering sacrifices of praise. Romans 12, Hebrews 13, 1 Peter 2. And where are we doing it? At Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews 12, 22. Nevertheless, we still await a greater day when the heavenly Jerusalem, where is our citizenship, will come as the new earth. In that day, we won't just be fighting to rest in Christ's supremacy and sufficiency day after day. In that day, it will be complete and the curse will be no more. So number three, and in conclusion, act on the fact That God saves worshipers without prejudice. Convinced that the fires of God's wrath in verse 8 of chapter 3 have already come on Jesus for all who will call on His name. It should motivate us, brothers and sisters, to, to go, to proclaim in order that more might be saved by calling on His name. Hear the urgency of Paul's voice. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How then will they believe in Him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. So, brothers and sisters, I urge you, the marvel of your great salvation should motivate missions. The marvel of your great salvation should awaken a passion for the global church here and abroad. Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The church of Jesus is to be an ever-increasing multi-ethnic community that follows the rivers of life back to the sanctuary of the great king. Missions exist today because the worshipers in Zephaniah 3, 9, and 10 are still being created in light of the fiery judgment of the past and in light of the fiery judgment of the future. The peoples from the distant lands, whether those who've moved to study language in northern China or those who have moved into the Phillips neighborhood or those who are still in their native countries in the most hard-to-reach places. They are living in darkness under the very wrath of God and the day of the Lord is at hand. But we have good news to proclaim to them that in Jesus, that day of wrath, that you and I both deserve can be sucked up into the life of Christ so that we can enjoy new creation if you'll but call on His name. We need godly goers. We need godly senders. We need to hope in the One who has sparked the new creation. He's the One who says He will bring it to pass. Today, In the 21st century, God is reversing the curse of Babel. Not bringing a unified language, but bringing a unified profession, a unified dependence, in order that the ultimate vision in Revelation chapter 7 might be realized a great multitude that no one will be able to number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud, united voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, I urge you, Join me in this mission. Father, I thank You that You have met us this morning, a small remnant of faithful followers on a very snowy Minneapolis Wednesday. Move in this place and move in Your world for the sake of Christ's name among the nations. For His glory we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.